This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Hi, it's Jen from Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen, and I'm here with Lynn today. Hi. And today we're going to be talking about fighting fair, which is something that we've gotten feedback on, and people have requested that we talk a bit more about relationships. I think they deeply affect our lives, and there's so much to explore there. And this idea of fighting fair even is relatively new. And what it really comes down to, Lynn and I were talking about, is it's about the balance of power and negotiating power in the context of relationships. And when we're using relationships today, we're really talking about partnerships that are emotional, sexual, just not your average kind of you and I relationship, but really about that tight dynamic. So more about intimate relationships. Intimate, that's the word exactly. I couldn't think of. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you've been very interested in this area for a while, Jen, and you've really gotten me interested in it or aware of it. I think to start a little bit, maybe talking about our individual patterns and how they've affected this. I'm generations earlier than you, and um, I think women in particular in my generation who moved into college in the 60s and then graduate school, maybe if they were fortunate in the 70s, really struggled with this whole era area of fighting fair, how to engage, how to engage with conflict, mm-hmm. how to handle emotions. And um, there was a quite a bit of polarization during the 60s and 70s of men and women just around this issue of conversation, you know, they didn't call it fighting fair, but how were these feminist consciousness raising ideas integrated into the rest of our worlds? So coming from that background and coming from a parental background too, my own family, my parents were high conflict. They did engage in frequent conversations. They each had studied law and they would argue torts at the dinner table. Oh my goodness. And I, I think, decided I'd be a psychiatrist and negotiate conflict differently. But at least it brought up for me that women and men can engage in this type of conversation. And it is possible. So I think that's an important starting point. Oh, I think it's a huge starting point. It points to the fact that our process, the way we deal with conflict, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's It really begins even before you know, before us. It it begins with our parents. It begins with our cultural background. I think that comes into play a lot. I think about my mom a lot and how, you know, she grew up in Taiwan. I think I've talked about this before, but it was still a very much stereotypic Asian culture where the man kind of had the lead, was head of the household, had the power. And as a culture, I recognize now that 
my mom has a hard time being able to state her needs directly. And it's something I realized that I used to get into arguments with her about because it was so frustrating to me that it would take, you know, like 20 minutes to figure out what the heck she was asking or wanting when it could just be a, you know, one to three minute conversation. And it's only more recently now in some of our exploration that I'm starting to really think about, okay, but where did that come from, you know, and and how fortunate I am to have this perspective that I can be more direct and that I have this expectation that, you know, being direct, that's just what we need to do. Um, but it was very interesting to think about that in a cultural dynamic. And I think one of the big role models, too, is my grandmother. And, you know, I went back to Taiwan recently and visited my grandma, but we've talked about it a little bit before. She was a school principal, and so she held a position of power that often wasn't held by women. And I think that also helped her to be more direct and more assertive. And I learned from her that I could do that, and it definitely was not the norm. Um, I think about my parents' ways of dealing with conflict, too. And I think they were somewhat high conflict at times, but they were also very avoidant. So it was more of the sort of slow simmering anger until they just couldn't hold it in anymore and it would blow up. And so it taught me a lot about anger and it made me not want to be that angry but I also didn't really know what it looked like to be assertive. And I think now I'm a more assertive person, but it's definitely an ongoing experience of learning how to navigate that. What you're describing, really, the generational and cultural differences, I think, are there really for everyone. Yeah. You know, they have this pathway. Having met your grandmother and your mother, right? you know, I see the different patterns. You know, your grandmother really had unique opportunities in Taiwan, you know, to be an assertive woman, and still is that. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And your mother, uh, I think, and myself, were similar generation, you know, that uh, we struggled really with, even though feminism was rising, you know, it didn't affect everyone. Mm -hmm. And it affected a, a number of people differently, depending upon cultural backgrounds and access to those ideas. So I think what you're describing, it, it, it does affect us, how our mothers really handle conflict. You know, my own mother, the fact she'd studied some law and, you know, there were differences within my family with Native American culture and French culture, you know, and those are different. Women have power in French culture of a different sort. You know, they're given power within that culture. And um, they use it, uh, the feminine wiles, the salons of the 17, 1800s in France, uh, even today in France, the candidate Le Pen, you may not agree with her, but sure. but she was assertive and really an amazing uh, woman in terms of demonstrating argument. But so that's there in French culture. In Native culture, many Native cultures, they're different, of course, within the U.S., and I don't plan to speak for all of them. But just my little experience with it is that women are attributed some power, though in recent years, as many uh, women Native writers have described, when these women have had trouble with modern culture and abuse. So Native women are, have not been able to speak out recently, but traditionally. 
they held a fair amount of power and that's still there. So it's a different balance, I think. But the upshot for me was I saw women have power and I saw them use different types. I wanted to avoid conflict like you and I wanted to be able to navigate it better. And I now understand you can't really avoid conflict. You've got to move toward it. So it's really how you address it. And I think it's reframing conflict, really, understanding that conflict is an opportunity to create a different pattern or to renegotiate or just have it go in a different direction. I think we think conflict and automatically it's like, oh, my God, terrible, avoid, run away. Mm -hmm. And instead, you know, also conflict doesn't have to be aggressive. We can talk about that more. But conflict in and of itself is really what I refer to as kind of the earthquake. It it Mm -hmm. doesn't feel very good, but it shakes things up. And sometimes the fallout allows you to come together and, and sort of put things together in a different format. And what you're talking about, it gets back to fair fighting. How do you have discussions? Right. How do you engage in conflict with a partner yeah. or intimate and really both benefit, both win from that interaction? I think a big part of it too is in in fighting fair, it helps to understand the dynamics that are play that are at mm-hmm. play. And so the first we've talked about here a lot is power. But I think the other thing that really deeply operates is fear and and how people navigate fear, right? And anger is a part of that. And I think we can go into that a bit more too. But I think when you understand that these are two things that are very core to how people engage in conflict with each other, then you start to be able to see different pathways. You're bringing up the really emotional access with fear and anger, fear... Um, a whole range of negative emotions affect how we engage in conflict. Yeah. Um, well, just know. just to build on that, yeah. we, we talked about it more in our attachment podcast. So, you know, if you want to hear more about this, definitely go check out that episode. But really, some of the biggest fears that come up for people when they're engaging in conflict is the fear of rejection or um, how did we phrase it? The fear of losing your independence And you can see how if that is the operating underlying fear or even just, you know, fear of being told that you're a failure, then your perception to criticism, your willingness to engage, all of that shifts because of what you imagine your partner will do. You know, if I bring this up, will they get angry and will they pull away? Will they cut me off? Because from an attachment perspective, that is one of the most threatening things. Also, many, many individuals and many we work with are afraid of physical uh, violence and oh, aggression yeah. in that way. So that figures Physical into fear, safety, too. You know, that your partner may not be, you know, hitting you or aggressing in that way, but the partner may raise their voice. They mm-hmm. may tower over you. There may be really frightening thoughts that go through your mind and through the mind of your partner during this type of interaction. So how to to deal with the emotional aspects of this and what part does this play in conflict, really? Yeah, I mean, because Gottman obviously is one of the well-known people in relationship literature. And I think he brings up the four, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? And those are criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling. 
and and really those are the things that come to play when conflict is is not going well and when somebody is trying to fight for power but in a way that isn't a power sharing it's about power over somebody and so criticism obviously is about you know when you focus on attacking somebody's character you hear a lot of you always you never you're the kind of person who blah 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 and obviously you know that kind of dynamic brings up defensiveness and it it just ends up everybody's sort of in this panic and you're not able to really hear the other person you're not able to progress forward because you're not on even ground mm-hmm. it really unhorses you as yeah, you unsettles right. it you, unsettles you. you exactly yeah so i think those are uh, gottman's work really has helped couples therapists deal with these points and it can help our listeners really you listen and and use those points and and work on using them, being aware of them, avoiding them, all of those things. Criticism is very detrimental in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And really, you know, they say that if you're going to give a critical point, Gottsman's work is you have to then, you know, build around it for positive points to really put it forward. And many people will give critical point after critical point. Right. And that really undermines that process. Well, also, the the way Gottman defines criticism, I think, is crucial because mm-hmm. you can give feedback. Feedback meaning, you know, this behavior affected me in this way. But criticism is really a personal jab at somebody. And obviously, that's much harder to hear. You know, if I tell you that, like, I think you're stupid, you're not just going to sit there and be like, oh, wow, my partner thinks I'm stupid. You know, you're going to react. <laughs> and so, but if somebody tells you, you know, you left the dishes in the sink and I thought you had agreed to do them, you know, that's very different. You can hear that. And it, it speaks to underlying dynamics about do you care about me? You know, are we working together? There's so much more that's packed into these comments, but they land better. And then you're able to really have a discussion instead of an argument, instead of fighting. And that's part of how we try to help families is yeah. really to navigate with language the words to use specifics in conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, that's better than a global label, mm-hmm. you know, and really say what you're feeling as best you can. One of the things that I think is hard for women, and um, Rebecca Solnit has written a new book of essays called The Mother of All Questions, and it's really about women being silenced in conversations and women not speaking out mm-hmm. and women not able to engage in discussions and around conflict. And I, I think it is hard uh, for a group that has suffered some oppression, exclusion, as women as a group really have, to really learn how to be more assertive, to say things specifically, to feel like you can speak out and say, you left the dishes in the sink. You told me you promised to do them. What about those dishes? What's kind of going on here? Right. But that's a big step, I think, if you feel like you've been silenced and you don't have a pattern of saying it. And what I see with a lot of families is that then women will be very angry. They'll yeah. hold back, 
you know, and by the time they mention the dishes and the responsibility of the other person, they'll be screaming or they'll be, you know, they'll be simmering contempt. Seething. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really learning how to address conflict as you experience it and use the words for it that you're describing so well, Jennifer. Yeah, I mean, I I think you really hit it on the head there in terms of the dynamic. And I think it's something people don't understand as much that because of the silencing, it makes it very hard to be able to speak up until you're at a point where you just cannot hold it in. And for the person on the other side, you know, it, it, I do understand how if, if someone hasn't told you that something is a problem, when they come at you head first with, you know, like, you never do the dishes, you know, you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, you know, but that's when a lot of the contempt comes in. You get the name calling, you get the insults, you get the mockery, you know, the, the tones of just dripping contempt. And, and that is also one of the horsemen, which I think I mentioned, but, um, Gottman brought up that in his studies, contempt was the biggest predictor of divorce. And so I think it's really important to understand where it comes from so that you can learn to heal it. You can understand that that's an attempt, obviously, to put yourself as superior. So it's, again, what we were talking about. It's a power over strategy. Right. And, you know, you and I have had conversations about individuals who have felt themselves to be a victim. Yeah. You know, and their response to feeling that the other person is powered over them will be they're a victim and they can say then whatever they want to say. Right. So you've got a partner here, let's use the dish example, who's suddenly contemptuous completely of the other partner. Right. Is expressing this and they've leveraged themselves because they feel themselves a victim into this position of power. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the funny things we talked about, maybe funny isn't the right word, but one of the interesting things we talked about was that, you know, we've talked in other podcasts about this entitlement victim flip. Exactly. It wasn't until we were talking recently that I thought about it. You know, the victim stance is also a form of grabbing onto power. It's not the same kind of power as being entitled, but it's instead of an assertive, which is a more balanced kind of power sharing, victimhood is also kind of pulling, but maybe in a more emotional power struggle kind of way. You know, you have the power over a person who's exerting from the top. I often think of victimhood, you're pulling from the bottom. Oh, I like the power that. power sharing like that. arrangement. Yeah. You know, this is the feeling I get working, you know, sure. with families in my own life. I, you know, of course, yeah. I'm exposed to these things too. And it's tough because I think there is that position and that quick shift, you right. know, from power over, your power's taken away, and then you're rapidly in the victim role, but you're still trying because to grapple you're still power. holding you're on to that power. power. Yeah, you're exactly. For power. And I think that's the thing, too. You know, anger is a, is a, is, what am I trying to say? A lot of my clients who are with a spouse who they see as very angry, they don't like, what they call giving in to the anger because to them that feels like the anger is power and that person is getting control. You know, they're controlling me with their anger. And I think it's really what we're trying to say here is while, you know, it's it's not a positive thing to be so angry with somebody you're with, it's understanding what drives that anger. 
you know, understanding that people that are that angry do not just get angry for no reason, but really being able to explore what is that underlying reason. I talk a lot about validating. And I think in the beginning with a lot of my couples, the person who sees themselves as more like logical and rational, they don't understand that validating somebody doesn't mean you have to agree or say that, you know, the anger that is directed at me is okay. It's really more an empathy thing. It's understanding like, wow, okay, I can see how if you believed these things, it would make you that angry. You know, that's really what validation is. Okay, I'm going to get into your perspective. I can understand how if I believed this about whatever was going on, I would feel that way too. And you bring up an important tool that can be used in relationships when you're in the middle of a a discussion that's high conflict. Yeah. You can really say, for this next minute, we're going to have each of us try to articulate the other's perspective empathetically. (laughs) Right, Because you often have that parody that's contemptuous. Yeah, you get the contempt. You're saying this, and it sounds horrible. (laughs) Right. But um, the real trick is to actually be able then to try to take on the other person's position and really feel what they feel. Yeah, because often what comes up is people who, you know, are unable to accept any responsibility. They engage in defensiveness, which is a form of blaming, you know, but the way they'll do it is they'll make excuses. Well, I didn't mean to do that. So, you know, so you shouldn't be so upset. You know, or that was not my intention. I hear that a lot. That was not my intention, so you should not be upset. It's like, okay, well, that wasn't your intention, but this is what happened, and I feel upset, you know. Another one is cross-complaining. So that's where, you know, somebody says, you know, I'm upset about this, and the other person says, well, I'm also upset about this. And it's just the back and forth, you know, or the yes, but, okay, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but I totally disagree with you anyway. And and all of those are forms of saying to your partner, I'm not to blame here. You're the one at fault. And obviously that, again, is a power dynamic that makes people very angry and you're not getting anywhere. So thinking about this, Jen, if you're in the middle of a discussion yeah. and your partner is reacting defensively to something, mm-hmm. what can slow down that process at that moment, maybe call for reflection. I mean, the thoughts that come to me, one is maybe you take a break for a minute or two, you know, you'd each take a walk for five minutes and then you come back to the discussion. You know, there are different Mm -hmm. ways to really deal with that point of uh, difficulty. Well, I think you, you have to really look at how emotionally flooded is this person because what they found in studies is for people who get extremely emotionally flooded, and um, statistically, it's men because they're not taught how to deal with emotions. Which is interesting in and of itself because women are often uh, attributed right. to be the ones to be the that more are emotional emotionally one. flooded. Yeah. But in reality, more often, it's the man in a relationship or the two men who might mm-hmm. be conversing. Mm-hmm. And they're both experiencing flooding. And and what you can tell about that is that they're basically emotional flooding forces you to shut down because it's so intense that you just, your all your senses are saying, pull away, stop, you know, get away. And what happens is if you don't take space then, then you launch into a full force angry attack just to get away. And, and so 
Um, what I was saying, though, is so what they found is it actually takes about 20 minutes for somebody who is emotionally flooded to get back to a resting state. And so if you're at that point, you really do need to say, OK, let's take a break. But it has to be longer than five minutes. Mm-hmm. But if you're not emotionally flooded and you're just sort of emotionally heightened, I would say, then you can take a quick break. I think also what I tell people is try to stick with the facts and and validate emotions. Because once emotions are validated, it calms the person down because it helps them feel understood. And the way to get to an, a power-sharing position is to feel understood. When both people feel understood, then you don't need to vie for power in the same way because and also I think reducing the different the Gottman you know apocalyptic horsemen. You know you've got to to feel understood. You've really got to have the criticism down. You've got to be listening. You know even if you have a small discussion that goes well, it's Mm -hmm. better I think than one Mm -hmm. of these really big out-of-control situations. So learning how to have small conversations about real things is important. Yeah, and so just to run through that maybe very quickly is, you know, how do you counter these Gottman for horsemen? Well, when it comes to criticism, we talked about how the, the standard way or criticism functions as an attack on the other person, on their character. So instead, you focus on the facts. You focus on the observations of behaviors, and you talk about you. I feel, you know, it's the stereotype. Instead of the you, blah, 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 it's I feel this. I I see this. I perceived this. You know, it seems like this to me. And with defensiveness, it's really about owning your own part. You don't have to say it's all my fault or it's all your fault. It's just, yeah, I can understand how somehow both of us got here and let's figure out how to get us out of this, right? And then with contempt, it's really about owning your own feelings and needs. So again, a lot of the focus here is on you because when we're upset, what we tend to do is we put it on the other person. We say, you do this, you make me feel, you always you know, you're a horrible person. And instead, when it comes to fighting fair, it's talking about what's going on for you. I'm feeling very distant from you. I think I talked about that in the attachment right. podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, and then things also I'm identifying overwhelmed. when you're, I am upset, yeah. you know, and these are the reasons and to I go need... back to the dishes, mm-hmm. you know, the dishes are in the sink. I am upset because the dishes are in the sink. And, you know, you right. had told me you would do the dishes, something simple like that. I thought the dishes would be done is right. even better, exactly. right? The less you can exactly. say you, the better. But it's very hard. I have to yes, admit, it's very exactly. hard. No, and I, I think these simple conversations work better around conflict because both individuals are getting emotionally loaded. With oh, yeah. It. In my own uh, intimate relationship, this these discussions do come up. Yeah. And just myself, I'm a person, as I mentioned already, with the parental right. arguments, I am more conflict really avoidant as sure. a style. And how to work with that has really been I will bring it up 
But then it, it uh, immense amount of emotion, anger, fear comes to me at that point in time. Yeah. And really how to handle that, to take the breaks we're talking about mm-hmm. after I've been able to express things, mm-hmm. really to learn other skills. You know, I mentioned to you earlier that suing the university was an opportunity to gain strength in conflict. But if you're a person who's not necessarily adept at it, you need to really learn skills and how to deal with conflict. And I think understanding that it is a skill, you know, that there are tools that you can do like what we're talking about. The language you use is important. The approach that you use is important. And I think really being able to think about what it is you want to say, because the truth is with a lot of these major blowout conflicts, they keep coming up because there's something at the core that is unresolved. And so they'll just keep coming up over and over. And a lot of times couples will come in and say, oh, we fight all the time. We fight about all these things. Like, where do we even start? And a lot of the times, if you get down to it, it's these core things. It's oh, I don't trust this person anymore, or I don't feel respected, or I feel silenced, or, you know, there, there's these core things that if you learn to recognize that that's where the issue is, you can have the discussion about that. And then it resolves all the other things. You know, a lot of times I use the dishes just because it's something couples fight about so often. Very often. But it's not about the dishes. It's about power dynamics. It's about feeling respected. It's about the balance of power in a relationship. It's about communication. And so you're arguing about the dishes, but you're not really arguing about the dishes. You're arguing about all, all those other things. And if you can say, you know, I, I feel burdened. Mm-hmm. You know, that's very different than, you know, you you left the dishes in the sink. I think it's also different. We began by talking about how this is different generationally. I think for families, we work with couples of all ages, and yeah. they're very different dynamics with, uh, you know, younger couples, you know, of all backgrounds really uh, are better, I think, at navigating conflict and power issues. They've had more exposure to it. Now, maybe they're not better, but they they definitely, uh, in my office, will bring it up. They'll navigate it. There won't be necessarily one totally shut down partner. Whereas with older generations in the office, there's often a partner who's completely shut down. Of course, that's a pattern that built over really decades. And you have to attack that, work with that, build the conflict skills, really look at can the relationship survive, you know, once you work on changing these patterns. So there's really different things to look at, but these skills are so important. And I think people, young people beginning relationships and even older people need to learn them early in the relationship and practice them. I guess that's what I was thinking. I agree with you for the most part. I would say where I disagree is I see a lot of young teen girls who are fresh in their relationships. And a lot of times they don't want to say anything because they're afraid that their boyfriend, partner will just leave, you know, if they bring up that they're unhappy in some way. And so they sort of suffer in silence. That, you know, the teen girl, I was actually thinking of couples in their 20s, the okay. 30s. Okay. But the teen, teen relationships are very interesting because they have the highest rates of physical violence. Yeah. People don't realize this. You know, and you think about teenagers and engaging in, you know, relationships, they're not that able 
probably to deal with conflict. Yeah. Physical aspects intrude. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a very, a special group to really deal with. I think all our kids in the high schools, middle schools need help navigating this area. I think so. And I think that's why, like, as parents, it's so important to look at how you navigate it, too, because exactly. it is a model for your children. And I do think it doesn't just fall on parents, right? But I, I do see that a lot of what I do in session is I model for them how to deal with conflict or we talk about, okay, well, what would happen with this? What are your fears? And I honestly think, as uncomfortable as it can be, exploring your fears that come up in a relationship is some of the most helpful work because it's in that place where we are the most reactive. And so if you understand the fear that comes up or if you're able to share that with your partner, they can kind of understand where you're coming from. A lot of the conversations I have with my couples is sort of breaking down an argument and saying, oh, okay, well, at that moment, you know, she suddenly got really angry, you know, what and then I'll ask the person who got angry you know what what was coming up for you at that time you know and it'll be something like oh well I thought he didn't care about me I thought he wasn't listening so I needed to get his attention and you know a lot of the times the person who was more quiet will say something like oh I was processing what you were saying it was so important to me I wanted to make sure I remembered it well, what you're saying about bringing forward fears, uh, I think that can be something you do in a non-conflict situation in right. a relationship. Right. So having a discussion about that before you partner even yeah. is really, or many discussions, or yeah. it's really an important point. What are your biggest fears? You know, how do you see before you're in an argumentative state? Well, um, that's that's part of building yeah. up these skills, right? right? Like you don't want to be learning these skills when you're in the middle of a high conflict situation. Right. You need to practice them outside. So just to think about it, summing up here, you know, we would encourage people to build skills of, of learning when you need to take that break, mm -hmm. you know, learning how to express your fears early on. Mm -hmm. So before you get to the conflict situation, I think practicing in medium and low conflict situations. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, how to express your point of view, how to handle those emotions you've been talking about, Jennifer, so well. I think those are skills that everyone really needs to build up to, to be in these relationships. I would add to that validating and understanding. Validating. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I think to it's it's one of those things that it's very hard so being able to be kind with yourself through the, through the whole process you know i think conflict especially in the context of partnerships is very challenging because it it shakes us kind of to our core we we feel so much a connection with this person that we're with that when they're unhappy with us so it affects us in a way that just is not the same as any other relationship, right? Like we, we still have deep relationships with coworkers, with friends, with our parents, but it's, it's a different emotional experience when you're in the context of this type of relationship. Absolutely. And my own personal experience and many of my clients is really that it colors your world, you know, differently. Yeah. When the person that you love and care for is really in a very negative frame with you. And many people try, that's what they're trying to avoid. Right. But uh, on the other hand, to see that you have that, that feeling and that emotional response is so important. And then you can work on addressing it. And, and that brings up the, the thing I forgot I wanted yeah. to mention is 
part of being in a partnership like this, what's so powerful is if you understand where the other person is coming from, it's a lot harder for us as individuals to calm ourselves down when we're that panicked. But we can work in tandem, in partnership to help assuage kind of the fear. So if you know your partner is afraid of being rejected, then you can say, oh, what what you're saying is so important to me. I just need some time to process what you're saying, right? And that makes the person feel cared for and that can help assuage some of the rejection. Instead of it, you know, you shutting down, being perceived as, oh, this person doesn't care about me. Like, I'm going to go into a panic, you know, and, and it's... That's part of the beauty of being in a relationship is is being able to help the other person out of that negative space. And this gets to really coming full circle and the advantages of learning how to fight fair and conflict, that you can help yourself, learn about yourself, you can help your partner, learn about them, and you can help the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to this one, Jen. We got a lot. We're only half done, quarter done. But uh, again, thank our listeners for staying with us. Yeah, thank you. Bye bye. Come on, let's talk about sex.